Our Father, I thank you for what David's just said, that the Lord Jesus, your eternal word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us in order that he might make you known and that he might rescue us from the shadow of death uh, that holds us in slavery. We give you great thanks and praise that we can spend time together this morning in the fellowship of your spirit, in the name of your son. And we pray that you would help this time to be helpful for us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I wonder if you see your relationship with God as a matter of life and death. Or do you see God as an accessory to your life that maybe enhances certain aspects, but you can take off or put on depending on what else is happening or how else you're feeling? Do you see your relationship with God as a life and death issue for you and for our world? Uh, As a Christian church, we are totally convinced that the Bible is God's revealed word to the world that he's made and we're totally convinced that Jesus is God's only rescue plan for the people that he loves and the people that he longs to spend eternity in intimate relationship with. We make a claim that can, to- that can sound totally outrageous every time you walk through those doors. I wonder if you feel the outrageousness of the claim that is made in front of your face. A claim that can seem very exclusive, that is really discriminatory, that's right there on the bulletin in front of your eyes each and every week, that there is life and hope in Jesus. We say that there is life and hope in Jesus. We say that in love. We say that humbled together under God's grace. That there is life and hope in Jesus is not a claim that we make about anything that we have achieved or anything that's great about us. It's not a statement that says we don't want you here. It's not a statement that says you're not welcome here. It's a statement that seeks to open our doors as wide as they can go and reach as many people as possible. It's a statement that we should say often with tears in our eyes as well as great joy in our hearts. Because when we say that there is life and hope in Jesus we are saying that outside of him there is not life and hope. Which is why we want to say it clearly and loudly and lovingly and openly. We want our doors to be wide and our hearts even wider to those around us. There is life and hope in Jesus alone. And this is God's great answer to the question that's already been asked by every person in every place at every time. Some of us ask that question explicitly in search of an answer. Some of us ask that question implicitly by the shape of our life and our loves and 
um, and all that we, we, we know we need in this world. Where do I find life? Where do I find hope? We know we need life. We know we all crave hope. And the life that we need and the hope that we crave, the Bible says, is only ultimately found in Jesus. And I want to maybe, you might feel like this is a long bow, but I want to say that that's exactly what Genesis chapter 5 is all about. I wonder if you were sitting there as Pete read this weird list of names and thought, what is all of this about? I want to see this morning, as we think about it together, that this is all about the life and the hope that Jesus brings. Uh, We're working through the the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and you can feel pretty uh, disconnected, I think, from this text. It can feel at times a long way away. It can feel distant. And I think chapter 5 is one of those sections that you can think, I feel distant and disconnected from what's going on here. And so it's tempting to skip over it. I don't know how many times you've done that as you read through the Bible. You get to chapter 4 and then chapter 5 and yada, 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 it's Noah and the flood. Right? But I want us to pause here for a moment and to think about... the way that this foundational book of the Bible has so much foundational truth and so much explanatory power that makes so much sense of our experience of life in this world and our need for the life and the hope that only Jesus brings. I think the question of this chapter is does the scourge of sin and the curse of death present an inescapable reality for you and for me? Is that just the inescapable reality of life in this world? Well, we've seen over the last few weeks that God made everything in the world and he made people to be his image bearers, to live under his loving rule and care, to be his representatives in the world, to glorify him by imaging forth uh, being his image in the world, imaging forth his glory into the world. But Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to run their lives their way and run God's world their way without him, thanks very much. The decision that you and I have echoed in our lives, that all of us have made that decision, that we want to run our lives in God's world, our way, without him, Thanks very much. And since the curse of chapter 3, where God said you will be excluded from his presence and cut off from the tree of life, you will be under the curse of death, the, the resulting punishment for your sin and the judgment of God on sin is death. But notice that the Bible doesn't finish after that. There's a lot of the story to come which means God doesn't pronounce his judgment on sinful humanity and say, I'm done with you. 
but rather even in his judgment, even in his punishment for sin, we see glimpses of God's grace and the reality that he is not finished with his people, that he has a plan of salvation that he is enacting, all of his initiative and his grace and his love and his kindness will be extended to rebellious humanity in order that the scourge of sin and the shadow of death will not be the inescapable reality for you and for me. As humanity in their sin are expelled from the garden, as their relationship with God is fractured, as the image of God in them is marred, as the good world that God has made starts to be cracked and disfigured, we see the impact of sin and death start to to flow out into the world, generation after generation. It didn't take us very long, did it, to get to the very first murder? And we see at the end of chapter 4 that that attitude of murder and humanity's brokenness and our sinful rebellion and our selfishness just starts to degenerate more and more and more. Have a look at verse 23 at the end of chapter 4 where we see Lamech, one of the... um, the descendants of Cain, the seventh in Cain's line, Cain who murdered his brother Abel, Lamech writes um, in verse 23 that I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Where we see a celebration Lamech celebrating the fact that he had murdered another person. And whereas the the mark of Cain in chapter 4 being excluded from God's presence and the stigma of exile and being cut off from God is all of a sudden in chapter 4 turned into a badge of honour. That sin isn't something to be ashamed of and to repent of and to be grieved by, but it's something to be worn as a badge of honour, to be sung about and celebrated as our world is prone to do. And the degeneration of humanity continues to flow out from the garden as we get further and further away from God's good creation. There's not much cause for hope as we get to the end of chapter 4 except that there are some who are calling on the name of the Lord. That there are some who are recognising that God is still in charge of his world. That God is still sovereign. That God is still to be trusted and depended upon. And as chapter 5 begins, we see that though humanity and and the world is broken, humanity is sinful, though the image of God in mankind is marred and disfigured, it's still present. And God has not given up on his people. Have a look at the start of chapter 5. 
This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his life, in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Here is the beginning of a new line the line of Seth. And here is mankind still living out some of the mandate that God had given them to be, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Here is mankind still living under the blessing of God, the blessing of life, the blessing of new life, the blessing of reproduction, the blessing of children, the blessing of a name, the blessing of a family that God's blessing can still be seen and can still be experienced even by a sinful humanity in rebellion against God. So gracious, so patient, so merciful is God that even in our sinfulness there is still blessing to be had in living out the human life in this world under God's blessing being fruitful and multiplying. But this genealogy in chapter 5 is set up explicitly to contrast the line of Cain with the line of Seth. In the line of Cain, we see that the, the murderous intent of Cain's heart continues to just flow out and multiply. And it's like in chapter 5, God starts again. And from Adam. Through Seth, God shows that there is still blessing to be had and there is still hope for humanity. One of the challenges I'm sure that you feel as you read chapter 5 is what are we supposed to do with the fact that people are living for seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years? What do we what do we do with that? I don't have a crystal clear answer for you. Some people have liked to think that maybe there's something symbolic going on here, that the numbers are meant to represent something, because this is a piece of literature and there's, there are a lot of literary devices going on. So some people say they must be representative of something, it must be symbolic of something. We just don't know what it's trying to symbolise, Right? Some people say maybe that uh, we just think of numbers differently. Some people think maybe we think of genealogies differently, that maybe it's talking about this is the, the head of a line, a line that goes for 900 years maybe in multiple generations. Some people say maybe this is really how long people were living. That in the shadow of the Garden of Eden only slightly removed from the access to the tree of life that people live longer. And chapter 6 seems to say that God made a decision after this. That in his mercy he wouldn't let people live longer than 120 years. I can't in myself see any other reason than to, to take the numbers at face value and to trust God with them and move on. The other difficulty that we have as we read Genesis chapter 5 
is when we see that this doesn't record all the generations. That like a lot of genealogies in the Bible, it doesn't record every person under every line, but it skips over them. We see the same thing when we get to Jesus' genealogy in the New Testament, right? And this is a literary device. It's called telescoping. That the writers, are, what they're trying to do is to show how a line moves from point A to point B and it plots some points on the line but not all of them. And it does that to make a point. And it often does it to, to compare and contrast with another line. So I think that the genealogy in chapter 5, the ten generations that we see, is meant to mirror the ten generations that we see in chapter 4. And it's meant to mirror it in, in chapter 4 is meant, and chapter 5 are meant to mirror one another in that we're meant to see that the seventh person in the line of Cain is Lamech, who gives us a stark example of humanity's sinfulness and the way that our hearts are inclined towards murderous intent and rejection of God. But in the seventh person in the line of Seth, we see a glimmer of hope. We see the possibility of life. Because all the way through this genealogy, as Peter read it, I wonder if you were hearing the refrain that went time and time again. That even as you see people living under the blessing of God and being fruitful and multiplying and new life coming into the world and people still enjoying the blessing of life in God's world, that the blessing of life in God's world is very starkly punctuated by that refrain and then they died. That no matter who they were, no matter who we are and how fruitful we feel like our life might be and how much we enjoy the blessing of God in this world and how much we think we make a contribution to those around us and to our community, that the shadow of death hangs over all of us because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so there's a refrain through this genealogy as there is a refrain refrain throughout human history as there is a punctuation mark at the end of everyone's life and then they died. And then they died. And then they died. And whether you're asking the question explicitly and that's why you're here this morning, or whether you're asking the question implicitly in seeking to maximise your life and your health and your prosperity by, by clinging on to relationships. We know we need life, we crave hope, and that death is the great problem to which humanity needs a solution. that no matter how much blessing you might see in the world around you, you don't need to look far to see lives punctuated by that refrain and then they die. You don't have have to look beyond this room 
I was talking to Noel before the service about Charles Adams. Who knows Charles Adams apart from Noel? Steve? If you don't know him personally. Charles Adams was the rector of All Saints for 22 years. From 1939. 39? 31. 1931. Charles Adams uh, opened the honour roll down at Fort Street High in 1938. He was the rector here for 22 years. I'm sure he did lots of good. Noel was telling us this morning about the, the, the service that he would run for the, the Sunday school children in here. But then he died. Charles Adams, his ashes are in the stage. You can come after the service and have a look. He's buried right under the Lord's Supper table. And he was rector here for 22 years and there's only one person this morning who knew his ministry. No matter what we do and how much blessing we we think we've received from God and that we're living out and we're experiencing, at some point or other we will die and at some point down throughout history our place, as Psalm 103 says, our place will be remembered no more. But in the middle of this refrain, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. We see the the stark contrast with the person of Enoch, who it said didn't die, but who went to be with God. The only hope to escape the refrain, then they died, then they died, then they died, is for God to intervene and to spare you from death. And for Enoch, it is said, it was after he had walked with God for 300 years that Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. The great answer to the problem of death is the intervention of the God of the universe for those who would walk with him. And this is what Jesus said when he came in John chapter 11, isn't it? That he is the resurrection and the life and that anyone who lives by believing in him will never really die. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that it's by faith that Enoch walked with God. That it's by faith, trusting in God's promises, trusting in God's goodness, trusting in God's character, trusting that God is the answer to those questions of life and hope. That Enoch walked with the Lord because he knew that the Lord was the answer to that refrain and then they died and then they died. And then they died. And so I wonder, friends, if you see that your relationship with God is a matter of life and death. And so you will look to the example of Enoch this morning to say, how can I walk with God? 
trusting that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Trusting that Jesus, by his death on the cross, has defeated death for me, that he tasted hell and took God's judgment in order that the power of death might not have that hold over us anymore. That we might walk with the Lord trusting in his goodness and his promises in order that we might one day walk with him in the cool of the evening once more. That we might enjoy his presence forever. That we might see the example of Enoch. That we might see the fulfilment of the Lord Jesus who walked with the Lord, but who who also tasted death for us. And he did that in order that you and I might walk, the New Testament says, in newness of life. It's a great picture, I think, walking with the Lord. Because if you're going to walk with someone, you need to be going in the same direction, don't you? To walk with someone is to be in step with them. To walk with someone is to want to go where they're going. To walk with someone is to want to be in relationship with that person, in fellowship with that person. And so the Apostle Paul prays that from the day we've heard of your faith, we haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding and so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And again he says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk. Walk how? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see your relationship with God as a matter of life and death? And so will you resolve to walk with the Lord, trusting in his plans and purposes, trusting in Jesus' death-defeating cross and resurrection? And will you walk in step with his spirit in order that one day when Jesus returns, like Enoch, the Lord might take you to be with him forever? Because, friends, that is the only place that we can find life and hope. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and loving Father, we thank you so much that there is an answer to the problem of death, that there is forgiveness there is new life to be found in the Lord Jesus. 
Father, please help us to see in the midst of a dead and dying world that there is life and hope in Jesus. And so help us to walk in step with you, trusting in your promises, delighting in your Son, and shining like stars in the world. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.